This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast for what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to individuals whose jobs touch on aspects of LGBTQ life. For this episode, we spoke with Alex McNeil, executive director of More Light Presbyterian, an organization that's been promoting LGBTQ inclusion in the Presbyterian Church for almost 40 years. McNeil, who is the first openly trans person to run a mainline Protestant organization, talks to us about the day-to-day effort of fighting for equality, both within religious communities and in the wider world. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, McNeil shares some selections of scripture that resonate with his life and activism. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Alex McNeil, and I am the executive director of More Light Presbyterians, which is a national organization working on LGBTQ issues in the Presbyterian Church and helping people of faith to get active in their local communities around LGBT rights and recognition. So that's awesome. I will also admit, though, that uh, I am a, I guess you would say, lapsed Jew. Uh, So I don't have a lot of background on Presbyterianism uh, generally. Can can you tell us a little bit about, um, before we get into the details of your organization, uh, about how uh, Presbyterian organizations have related to LGBTQ issues historically? Absolutely. So we have historically worked within the Presbyterian Church USA, which is a Presbyterian denomination that Many call one of the mainline Protestant denominations um, mm-hmm. that has been in in existence for um, <laughs> since the time of the Reformation almost. Um, mm. Within the United States, the Presbyterian Church has existed in various forms, but we have worked within um, this branch since uh, 1974 when issues around homosexuality and who could be a minister within the denomination really started coming up. Um, More Light was Mm -hmm. founded when a Presbyterian minister stood up at a gathering of the Presbyterian General Assembly, which is our governing body, and held up a sign that read, Is anyone else out there gay? And Mm -hmm. his act really launched a 
a group called Presbyterians for Gay Concerns that really helped bring people together who were first starting to identify as LGBT. In 1978, the Presbyterian denomination was asked whether homosexuals could be ordained and and be ministers. And that was really the first time that they were asked to take a particular stance on it. And through a long, convoluted process, there was a report that was offered to this same General Assembly that was this big Presbyterian gathering that where votes are held and policies are voted on. And originally, the report read that, yes, homosexuals could be ordained and serve in leadership and membership within the denomination. But at the last minute, a minority report, to get pretty wonky on you, a minority report <laughs> was adopted that said that homosexuals couldn't serve in church leadership but, but could be full members of the church including baptism, hmm. which that that act really launched the 40 years or so of the church's work around LGBT inclusion. And where does More Light Presbyterian, your organization, enter into that dynamic, enter into those conversations? That same weekend after the minority report was, public, uh, was accepted in 1978, one of the pastors who'd worked on the majority report that was going to allow for uh, gay people to be ordained, went back to his home church, West Park Presbyterian Church in New York City, and he preached a sermon that borrowed from a famous line by the uh, Sermon on the Hill around, there is yet more light, he hmm. said, to break forth on the scriptures around homosexuality, and as such that they were going to be a more light church, and they weren't going to discriminate in leadership or in um membership within the church, and his act really caused a number of churches across the country to follow suit and say, yes, we are going to be a more light church as well. And the the numbers of those churches have grown, and eventually the Presbyterian Gay Caucus um, uh, evolved to the Presbyterian Gay and Lesbian Caucus and then joined forces with more light Presbyterians in the 90s so that it encompassed both congregations and individuals. So this is— an organization with a pretty deep history, uh, a long one. Um, what does its work involve today? What are you and, and others who you work with doing uh, under the More Light umbrella? Yes, it is a long history. We're celebrating our 40th anniversary of More Light Churches. Uh, Congratulations. Which is exciting. A lot of people would tell me that's before I was born. Um, I'm 35. <laughs> so in the past decade, the work for LGBT inclusion in the church, just as it has within the country, has been at a breakneck pace. And mm. we are sitting in a point now where in 2011, after years um, of, of struggle, changed the policies so that openly gay and lesbian bisexual people could serve in ordained ministry within the Presbyterian church. And then in 2015, which was, uh, I started with More Light in 2013 and 2015, changed the policies so that um, marriage was recognized as between two people, not just between a man and a woman, and Mm. that pastors could perform same-sex weddings, which Mm. many ministers over the course of the past 10 years were asked by same-sex couples within their congregations to perform weddings. And as marriage laws changed, 
um, different pastors were even brought up on trial and had their ordinations almost revoked because they were being faithful to the people within their congregation by marrying them. So Hmm. changing marriage policies in the denomination was a really important step to allow for the fullest participation of LGBT people within the denomination. So what does that work look like right now? Um, Yeah. Well, we all know that changing policy doesn't necessarily mean that practice changes at the same pace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've been really fortunate that we've changed these policies so that churches don't have to be out of sync with the denomination anymore for welcoming LGBTQ people within their midst. But what we at Morelight have really been working on for the past two years is how to help churches live into what welcome looks like, not just as a statement of inclusion, but a practice, both within the Mm. church walls and out in the communities. Mm. So, I mean, we can talk more about the practice of that in a few minutes, I hope. But I'm I'm curious about your background. How did you end up committing your life, your career to this work of promoting inclusion and openness and hospitality uh, within Presbyterian churches and communities? Mm. I grew up deeply Presbyterian in North Carolina. My family moved around a lot to different cities growing up, but we always ended up at a first Presbyterian church, no matter what town we lived in. In fact, I didn't know there were other Presbyterian churches beyond the first, such as a (laughs) second Presbyterian (laughs) church until embarrassingly late in life. And the other thing you need to know about me is that I am a transgender man. So Mm -hmm. I was raised um, as a girl throughout my life. And, um, Growing up as pre-transgender, moving around a lot, church became the place that I felt the most safe, actually. Hmm. That school wasn't that place. It was at church where I felt like I could be the most myself. I grew up running Hmm. around the fellowship hall after worship um, with juice and cookies in my hand, just um, being my full self in, in early elementary school. Later on, I would join the youth handbell choir and the youth choir and be the first person there for a youth group on Sundays. Church was a home to me. And as I was in high school, it occurred to me that perhaps my calling in life was to help church be a home for other people as well. At the Mm -hmm. same time, this was in the late 90s, I was realizing that I was attracted to women, and as someone who was raised as a woman, the way I knew how to identify that was as a lesbian. So right Mm. before college, I sat my parents down on a summer night before I was about to pack up and go to orientation, and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm a lesbian, and I feel called to go to seminary after college to be a pastor. Mm. I'm not sure which shocked them more. Fortunately, they were supportive of both, but they had just never thought that the two could exist in the same place. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that within the denomination at the time, there were laws on the books saying that as an openly lesbian person, I could not be ordained into the Presbyterian church. But my naivete at 18 made me feel like, well, we'll just change that. And it'll be possible (laughs) one day. 
Um, so I went to college in, in, at the University of North Carolina and then later on to seminary at Harvard Divinity School. And I graduated in 2008. And there, at that, that year was one of the um, most, uh, the closest attempt at changing the laws within the church that we'd ever come. And, hmm. um, but I sat on the sidelines for that because at the time I was really wrestling with my gender identity and my place within the church. I didn't know where my gifts were going to be used, but I knew that it wasn't within a, a pulpit, with, within a congregation, because there was something wrong between my head and my heart around my mm-hmm. sense of self and identity and who I was in my body. But mm-hmm. then in 2011, um, and actually 2010, um, another vote at the General Assembly um, allowed for a change within our Presbyterian Book of Order, which is the constitution and governing documents of our church, um, that would change the policies around ordination and replace it with a paragraph that actually asked people to look for gifts of service to ministry that were about the way you read Scripture and following Jesus, not who you loved. Mm-hmm. So I knew mm-hmm. that I had to get off the sidelines and participate if I wanted to call myself a Presbyterian. So I joined as a volunteer with more light Presbyterians that had been leading the charge around changing these policies for so long. And what they put me to work calling pastors across the country, talking to them about why we needed this change in our policies and asking them what they loved about this church, about this denomination, about um, serving in ministry and to seek out their feelings about what this change in rules might mean for them. And calling those pastors, we made hundreds of calls, really changed my life because it allowed me to see the number of people across the country who were willing to have a conversation with a stranger about why this denomination meant so much to us. And Mm. even hearing from some pastors who even changed their minds and voted yes to this change after our Mm. conversation reminded me of the power of telling your story and and speaking honestly to someone. In 2011, the laws changed, and suddenly the question moved to me from, what are you going to do since you can't get ordained, to when are you going to be an ordained minister? And that is Mm. when I realized that um, in order to live out this calling, I needed to transition medically and really be in the in the body and gender that I felt called to be in. Um, Mm. And after I started that process, I got the call that more like Presbyterians was seeking a new executive director in this new era of what it might mean to be an LGBT serving organization in this new dawn of the church. And Mm -hmm. I felt that if I had gifts to give that I'd like to give them in service to this organization to be at the forefront Mm. of what's next. It, you know, from that story you just told, it seems like part of the educational work that you and More Light have been doing isn't just about informing, but also asking, questioning, soliciting people's own stories and not just telling your own. Is that accurate? Is that a, a, a correct characterization of, of some of what you've done? That is absolutely right. Part of the work we do is to help remind people that they too have a story whether it's about gender or sexuality or even their call to be Christian. And Mm -hmm. that story is worth hearing. And when we share those together, 
we can find common points of relationship that is more important than any of the rules that we're trying to change and the foundation for how we want to live in the world. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So what, along the way, uh, what kinds of issues have you been able to inform people about? I mean, do you feel that you are opening people's minds to to new ways of living and loving and, and feeling and being um, in the process of, of doing this work? Mm. Well, the first issue we worked on as I, once I started with More Light was changing the policies around marriage and mm. changing the rules so that pastors could marry same-sex couples. And the way that we went about doing that was the same way we did it through the po- process of changing the ordination policies, which is that we actually had conversations with hundreds of people across the country because the way to change the constitution of the church is we need it. It's a ratification process and you need 51% of these regional governing bodies to vote yes. And mm-hmm. I knew that, um, when people don't have a chance to talk about their fears and their feelings and their questions, that that will lead to people voting no out of fear. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we undertook this process to talk to folks across the country about what this change might mean in the hopes that it would open up people to really um, empathizing more with those who they may not have ever met, who were seeking to be married by their pastor in their home church. And Mm -hmm. in a moment when different states were changing their laws and ultimately the Supreme Court made its ruling in the summer of um, 2015, we ended up having a 71% majority yes vote on marriage equality. So I, when I joined More Light in 2013, I did so openly as a transgender man I had been out as transgender for a few years by that point and mm-hmm. was just getting to the point in my transition when I could go through airport security without being patted down. So I made, But I made the decision to mm. be visible as transgender, even though I had no idea how that was going to be received, even within the more light community um, and as someone who was leading a Christian organization um, – at a time when transgender issues, I think, were really just beginning to be even more visible than they had been before. And instead of mm-hmm. getting negative feedback or hate mail, actually being open as transgender allowed for this huge wave of people coming to me and asking to be educated and learn more about what it means to be transgender and how they could better welcome transgender and non-binary people within their congregations. So it actually allowed for this wave of education. But Mm. the way that I went about doing some of those workshops and um, education opportunities was really in the same way of of storytelling, inviting people to think about their own gender identities 
and the ways in which they learned about what it meant to be male or female or somewhere in between or non-binary and how they've been on a journey around that as well to be able to build empathy with transgender people rather than just have transgender as some separate thing um, that they have no idea Hmm. what it means. Do you think that people are more receptive to that sort of learning, that kind of empathy when it's emerging out of a religious context? And we we often think of some of us are have been taught to think of religion as something that needs to be overcome in in LGBTQ activism. But in in this case, it kind of seems like it may have been a way in uh, to folks' hearts and minds. Certainly the call for empathy across difference exists very strongly within religious communities, or at least it does within the Presbyterian Church and many mainline Christian Protestant denominations that we are called to love those even when we don't know their full identities, that we're called to love our neighbor. So Hmm. starting from a place of empathy was very much in the language, but I found that leading that kind of workshop outside of the church has been really effective as well, that I think folks who want to know more about Mm. transgender people are looking for connection points, ways that it, that might touch their own experience rather than wanting to keep it separate. I think there's, that can be scary for some people, but most folks that I get to talk to really want to know how we are similar rather than how we are different. Yeah. Have you encountered any kind of moments of strong resistance from folks along the way, or has it mostly been welcoming in the way that you're describing now? I think that the moments of resistance that I've experienced are around the unfamiliar and when people come up with the, come against the, the places that they feel like they really don't know how to imagine someone else's experience. And Hmm. my work is to really try to find a through line for them in that imagination. It may not even be about me standing before them as a transgender person, but it might be about uh, just Hmm. in, in the unknown transgender person that's not standing there that they can imagine they don't know how to welcome. I once had a conversation with a man at a more light church who was telling me the story of his, of his church's work with more light. And he was an, an older gentleman. And he said, well, they'd been more light for about 20 years. He said, well, first we welcomed gay people and then lesbians. And then we learned about bisexual people and now transgender people. He threw his hands up in the air and he said, what's next? And it had baffled him hmm. that, there could be something that he couldn't imagine or know about. And I don't sense that as actual resistance to transgender people, but rather to something that feels so unknown that he can't wrap his mind around it. So my work is to help them wrap their minds around it. Yeah. Does it make a difference at all in these conversations, in these projects, that you are are standing before them not just as a, a, a transgender person, but also as someone in a leadership role? I mean, do you think that that helps shape their perception of of others, of, of the unfamiliar? I think it's helpful that I'm standing there in a leadership role because that 
for a lot of reasons means they're willing to accept my opinion <laughs> um, as mm-hmm. as valid. And I really wrestle with that because I'm someone who is a white transgender man who most people on the street don't read as transgender because they just see me as male. And when I'm in mm-hmm. these church basements as an openly transgender man running a nonprofit that and within a Christian perspective that many of them can relate to, you know, we have a lot of points of, of continuity. My work is really to help open the space for who's not in the room, for people whose genders, identities, someone may not know how to read right off the bat, or who may be bringing multiple intersections of oppression into the into the space. So I try to use my privilege in those in 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 those moments as a springboard to say, okay, go with me on this journey of seeking Mm -hmm. greater openness in a way that perhaps you haven't been able to do before. Yeah. You you also hold a, I mean, speaking of kind of points of authority, uh, you hold a master's in divinity from Harvard. Um, Does, does that background and I, I assume the kind of familiarity with theological inquiry that, that comes with it, play a role in your professional life? The short answer is yes, it does play a role. Mm. There's an interesting Mm -hmm. distinction within the Presbyterian church where there are Presbyterian-specific seminaries, um, and Harvard is obviously not one of those. So in some sense, (laughs) going to Harvard is (laughs) a little cultural uh, cachet. In other communities, not going to a Presbyterian seminary um, is actually strange. So hmm. it's interesting the interplay of those depending on where I am in the country and, and who I'm talking to. The other thing is that I'm not yet ordained as a Presbyterian minister. So yes, I have a Master's of Divinity, but haven't finished the ordination process because of when I started in it during the time that the rules were on the books that weren't uh, made it, making it not legal for me to uh, finished ordination process. So I've been in the in this journey for coming up on 12 years. And hmm. in some sense, yes, I have a master's divinity, but no, I'm not a pastor. So I, I hold this weird line um, that's pretty blurry that I do have the training, but I don't have the credential. Um, hmm. But personally, what I learned at seminary and at Harvard Divinity School impacts me regularly in the ways that I approach my work. Are you working on Presbyterian ordination now? Yes, I am. I'm still in the process. There's a number of items to check off the list of things you need to do to enter the last phase of the process, which is called certified ready to receive a call. And I have one uh, step left. And the goal is to ultimately be ordained to the position I have now at More Light. Hmm. So what's that one step that you have left? (laughs) I need to do a unit of hospital chaplaincy, which uh, is commonly referred to as CPE. And it's either a 40-hour-a-week intensive for 10 weeks or an extended unit um, across four months. And my challenge has been with the more than 40-hour-a-week job I have to be able to work that into – um, my uh, daily life and, and still have enough hours yeah. to sleep and eat. 
Well, hopefully you'll find the time eventually, but maybe this is an appropriate juncture to ask you about your typical days. What, I mean, you've talked a lot about meeting with people, about talking with people, about asking them questions and finding points of connection and empathy, but, you know, do you also like work out of an office? Do you have a, <laughs> do you have a kind of the ordinary boring stuff that all of us have to deal with in one way or another that you do as well? Oh, I get plenty of boring. Don't worry. Yes, I am. <laughs> I often tell people that I work from home when I'm not traveling. So I travel uh-huh. a ton for my job. And then when I'm back at the home front, I actually have an office in my house, which is a lovely place to do work from. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you are you someone who starts working at eight in the morning or, or when you're working from home, do you have sketchier hours? <laughs> Being an executive director... And in conversations with other executive directors, I know it is it is a nonstop process in that it's always on your mind. It, it's always mm-hmm. present, this work. But I've worked really hard to establish some boundaries around my work, especially when mm-hmm. I'm not traveling. Um, mm-hmm. So I try to get to my desk around 9 a.m. if I'm not at a deadline and and need to do some writing in the morning, 9 a.m., and then try and log off around 5.30 um, or 6. Those are days when I don't have an evening meeting. Um, our board meets at, in, at night over the phone uh, once a month, or a church may need me to call in and, and do a conversation with them about exploring becoming more light. So those typically haven't happened in the meetings uh, in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's just a regular day, I try to do a, a 9 to 5.30, which is a really, um, it's harder than it sounds, but it really mm-hmm. requires me to structure my day pretty specifically so that I can get everything done that I need to do. So um, what are the things that you need to get done? You, you alluded to writing a moment ago, but um, what kind of stuff are you writing? What other, what other work are you doing? Gosh. Um, so the kinds of work I do. Right now, I am working on bringing some potential um, what they call overtures to the Presbyterian General Assembly, which I've talked about before. That's There's another meeting mm-hmm. this summer, and we're a group of us are trying to uh, bring forward some affirmative statements around transgender identities, LGBTQ identities, and allowing the church to say more uh, emphatically that we disagree with the current use of religious liberty in um, in the public square right now. And so mm. the writing that I was doing last week was on an overture of transgender affirmation. So writing rationale for why we need this overture, which required some research around statistics of uh, uh, transgender exclusion within the U.S. and um, drawing from some of our Presbyterian foundational statements about care and equality for all peoples. Um, that's one thing I wrote last week. Another piece I wrote last week was a fundraising appeal, which is another part of my job, writing um, mm. an email. It's December, uh, writing an email to folks, inviting them to support More Light this month and into 2018. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, writing on a d- number of different topics. Mm-hmm. And then are you, I assume, I, I would guess, I should say, uh, that you are also managing 
volunteers and, and maybe other employees of the organization, uh, if there are any? At Morelight, we are tiny but mighty. We have three full-time mm-hmm. staff and a part-time finance guru and a fundraising consultant uh, firm. Mm-hmm. And this is actually the first year that we've had three full-time staff, which is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, so the other part of my day is spent managing staff who are doing program and organizing work. We're really involved right now in North Carolina uh, following HV2 that happened two years ago. Um, getting the, people the, the faith. bathroom exclusion bill. Yeah, the bathroom exclusion uh, bill. Getting people the faith to to really name a positive vision of LGBTQ inclusion within our state. Um, so mm-hmm. one of our staff is is organizing pretty full time on that, and then another staff member runs our programs and communications work. And so visioning for that, as well as helping them to feel empowered to do the work that they need to do is a huge part of my day as well. Did you have background from other work you had done in in management and in, in managing uh, other folks? Or, or, or is that something that you had to, to learn in the process of doing this work? When I finished seminary in 2008, my first job was in a nonprofit. And there I became, the over time, the director of development and really got some on-the-job experience for mm-hmm. how to manage staff and really look at program and vision alignment. I think it was some of the best training for me to enter into this job at Morelight. But I've also been really assisted in management through an amazing organization called the Management Center. We have a book called Managing to Create Change, I believe it's called, or Managing Managing to Create Change. My staff and I call it the Bible. Um, because it has such great uh, ways to <laughs> go about management that's really uh, co-empowered. It's not just one person top down. And um, then I've had the benefit of coaches um, for the first two years of my time at Morelight. I had a coach that I worked with um, pretty regularly that really helped me get get really helped me understand the deep wisdom that I had to bring around how to manage staff and program and vision and all the things you're juggling while you're sitting in the seat of a, as executive director. Mm-hmm. It, it, you also, though, you, you, in addition to all of this, you're also doing a lot of traveling, right? Does, is it difficult to kind of balance that, that time that you spend on the road with this home office-based managerial and organizational work that you have to do? Trying to figure out the balance between travel and being at home is, I think, the constant quest in my life. Um, maybe I'll have figured it out by the time I'm finished with this job. But it is <laughs> it is really hard because when you're traveling to a place to visit a church, to visit a community, you really need to be um, present. With, with that community. So I I try not to overly check my email, try not to to overly just feel distracted from the other things that I'm thinking about. Um, so I, I do put some of my kind of staff management stuff uh, arranged around travel. So we use Slack a lot of the time for staff conversations. Um, hmm. I often say, thank God for the internet and Google Docs, because without it, I don't know how I'd do my job. Um, <laughs> So having shared documents uh-huh. and, and shared conversations around work allows us to 
both feel connected even when I'm gone or when they're gone for a, a different event. Um, and also be able to take the space we need to be present with the communities that we're working with. Whether or not you're on the road, and this may be a silly question, but do your religious commitments and the forms of practice that go with it inform the way you approach managing folks and running an organization? Mm, that's a great, great question. I would say yes, that my sense of Christian ethics dictate how I manage staff. I'm very collaborative in my approach around management and believe that the staff that I've hired, I did so because they're brilliant at what they do. And so I want to invite their wisdom mm -hmm. and creativity into the process as much as my own, because I believe that what we can create together is much stronger than what I could just do sitting in my own house. Um, mm. And if there's something where someone messes up and makes a mistake, my approach is really around, well, how do we fix it? And how do we make sure it doesn't happen next time rather than punitive? Um, and even if there's a staff member that's not working out for whatever reason, that it's not a good fit, my approach even in that instance has been to recognize their dignity and worth as a human first and that this is not the right fit for them, that there is a better fit for mm -hmm. them somewhere else and to believe in that and help them find that if um, we need to let them go. Um, so I actually, I think that it really does infuse everything that I do. Um, and working with an, a religious organization, I think one of the the biggest challenges that's also a religious organization that's also a nonprofit in this way the biggest challenge is to remember that we're also nurturing not only the spirits of people that um, that work with us, but also tending to our own spirits and spiritual growth. So hmm. in, at my best, I think, um, trying to find ways that we can infuse that within our work and practice, which will allow us to be our most creative, best connected selves. It It seems like, you know, inevitably other factors do impose themselves on the work you're doing, though. And I'm thinking especially here of the political climate. You talked about working in opposition to HB2. Um, but there's a, a lot of ugly stuff going on around trans issues, around LGBTQ rights more generally right now. How do you, as, a, as someone who is working on these issues within a specific context, how do you interact with the, the sort of larger political currents that are affecting our lives in the moment that we mm -hmm. live in? In Christian practice, we are often invited to look at the already and the not yet, to hold what's happening with the hope for what could happen. And I woke up the day after the election last year feeling scared, but also so clear about what Morelite was called to do in this time, which is to hold that up for and with people, that we must work to preserve or advance or push back against the erosion of 
rights and recognition and dignity at the same time that we hold a vision of a world where all people can be free from oppression. So as Christians, I think we go out into the world holding that vision, and it can be very powerful to work within a political climate that wants you to be afraid and wants you to retract and wants you to um, believe that the administration has the final word on things or <laughs> seven words you can't say, for example, um, <laughs> and that we are called to resist that with not just our minds and our hearts, but our bodies and our spirits as well. So it yeah. allows, I think, for some fuel to get us through what has been a really challenging time on for many people across identities, across um, uh, status, et cetera. And so I hold it as as opportunity to keep us moving forward um, despite where the political climate is in this moment. Are you able to or are you working to um, collaborate with secular uh, activist organizations as well? Uh, or is your work primarily focused on religious communities and organizations? We absolutely collaborate with secular organizations. For example, the work we're doing in North Carolina is through a coalition uh, that we participate in that includes um, several organizations working from a faith-based perspective or within a particular faith community, as well as secular organizations such as Equality North Carolina um, that really have some of that, the have the wisdom and vision of the landscape that I don't think that we could work without. So I think it's really imperative that secular organizations and faith organizations, when they can, collaborate because there you're getting kind of the the gifts of the whole so that you're really staying attuned to the political moment in a very deep way and not forgetting that people show up to protest with bodies and with spirits mm -hmm. so that we can mm -hmm. nurture both at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, it does seem like within the the Presbyterian communities that, that you work at least in part within that you're, 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 institutionally focused on, you have seen a lot of change in the last few years, but also over the last 40-ish years that that More Light has been operating. Is that heartening to you at all when you think about the work that remains to be done in the world more generally? Seeing the scope of work and the scope of change that has happened over the past 40 years, I sometimes call myself a hope evangelist that... <laughs> part of my role is to help keep people hopeful and helpful to bring about uh, a, a better world and, and continue this progress forward. It does feel very heartening to me. I mean, even after House Bill 2 passed in North Carolina, to bring it back there, we, which denied transgender people the ability to use the bathroom that aligned with their, with their gender identity, we heard from churches and people all across the state who called us wanting to, again, take on more transgender education, who wanted to change their church's bathroom policies, who wanted to make sure that their youth groups were sensitive to LGBTQ youth. So in, in the face of these rollbacks and restrictions, I, I have seen 
countless faith communities across the country and really stepping up to say not in the name of our faith and really not not in our worship spaces, but also not in our communities. So those those moments that happen every day make it imperative, but also easier to keep walking on this journey um, of of bringing the movement forward. Do you feel like you're making the world a better place? <laughs> mm. One of the parts of my job is touring with this documentary called Out of Order that started in 2012 and I actually helped produce and part of my story is is told in that documentary. And it started in 2012, one year after the ordination policies changed within the denomination. And the people featured in that film are LGBTQ folks who are going through this ordination process like I described before. And there's a question in the air in that documentary at the beginning of what's going to happen? Are churches going to be willing to hire us? Is the wider um, faith community that we're a part of going to be accepting of LGBTQ folks in leadership and ministry? And the film ran for four years within filming and, and now has been out for about a year and a half. And I've attended over 25 screenings of it in person. And watching it with audiences is such a reminder of how far we've come and how much more work there is to do, certainly. And audiences really get a sense for that. But at the end of the film, inevitably, a young person will come up to me and give me a hug with tears in their eyes or whisper that they too are LGBTQ and for the first time have seen themselves in film. And I can't deny the impact that that has on the world. And my hope is that everywhere we take this film and everywhere we take a training leaves the community a little stronger than we found it. Um, and with the resources and tools to um, continuing to continue opening up inclusion within their spaces and, and within their um, state. And I've seen, I think you don't get to 71% people affirming marriage equality without, without some real positive change happening. We wouldn't have gotten that vote in 2013 if we'd just taken a vote. Um, so I believe that every single person who changed their heart, changes their heart or learns something new and incorporates it into their life, that is part of how we change the world. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about your work today. Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun to get to take part of my day to talk about my work today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. Uh, this week, we want to recommend uh, Dear Prudence, uh, Slate's Dear Prudence podcast. You may read uh, the column written by Mallory Ortberg, the advice column, Dear Prudence. But if you want to escape into someone else's problems for a while while you are using your ear canals, check out the uh, hilarious and insightful Mallory Ortberg on her podcast, where she and a guest each week tackle real-life problems from the outrageous to the everyday. Find it at slate.com slash dearprudence or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, here at Working, we always love to hear from you by email. You can write to us via working at slate.com. I try to read and respond to all of the emails that come in there, and they mean a lot to me. Um, you can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. 
I also want to give a special thanks this week to Slate's Christina Caterucci, who connected us with Alex McNeil. Christina is wonderful and brilliant, and you should read everything that she writes on Slate.com. This episode was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.